Oh, were you? Mm. Oh my. Okay. So let's talk about. I won't get into the whole thing here, but I last month I shared a memory about my hope chest that there's this kind of antiquated idea. I don't imagine that it happens anymore. I'm probably one of the last generations of kids whose parents even thought of something like this, but it was like the idea was to have a chest of some kind, a trunk or something filled. You would slowly over time collect things that your daughter would someday then use when she got married. Like, oh, I'll put these things in here. And so as an adult, I I kind of had always been aware that this thing existed. And my parents just then used my hope chest as a place to put plants on in their house. <laughs> and they never gave it to me. <laughs> so like one time on the... <laughs> Have you ever heard of this before you knew uh, me? No, just from you. So it, you didn't get it before? I never got it. And are there, so it's all wedding stuff. Is there specific like thing, is it like uh, a veil and a bouquet, like specific things that like, no, these are things you will use in the wedding. It's and- more like things you will use in your life. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So one time I had the kids over there when they were probably four years old and I was like, what's what's in this thing, this trunk that you guys use? And my mom's like, well, that's your hope chest. I just never finished it, never finished putting things in it. Um, But I had been collecting things for you. And I was like, oh, well, let's see what's in there. What was in there is that small Mount Rushmore collector's plate. If you see it up there somewhere, it's a white... From when my grandparents went to Mount Rushmore, like in the 70s. Okay, so it sounds like she was kind of winging it anyway, in terms of what she put in the chest. Yeah, a dented little metal serving tray with flowers on it, some measuring cups from like the 70s. Um, Now, were these things supposed to be like charming antiques, or were they put in there at a time where like... These are good measuring cups. She'll need them. (laughs) I think that you are supposed to put in like, oh, I I will. Here's a sale on a nice pan or something. And oh, I'm going to buy an extra and I'll put it in my daughter's hope chest. Okay. But my mom um, always putting a lot of care and intention into my uh, upbringing. I think just put garbage in there like things like a dented like tray. It was just as big as a small, like a a book, you know, like a hardcover book with a big dent in it. I mean, just things that seem very three cinnamon rolls on it, but they would all like roll towards the (laughs) center. (laughs) It was just this really careless combination of things and i know there was a few others that i just have forgotten off the off of the list so i just left it there i didn't ever because she didn't want me to take it well she didn't want me to take it okay because she was using it as a a flower stand yeah anyway emily post has uh a, a section about the hope chest it was it's sometimes called a trousseau T-R-O-U-S-S-E-A-U-X. So they used to be quite extravagant back in the day. At present, the extravagant trousseau of yesterday's daughters of the very wealthy are dwindling to items of actual requirement. Household linens enough to run an enormous house and for a lifetime are a thing of the past. Few modern linen closets would hold them. The well-appointed house of today's bride will be adequately equipped to start married life with the following items, but she will wish to add to them as her family and household expand. Bed linen. Amounts are for each bed. Six sheets for master bed. Four sheets for guest bed. Four pillowcases for each single bed. Eight for double bed. One blanket cover. Washable silk or drip-dry cotton. Two quilted mattress pads. One lightweight wool blanket for summer. One electric blanket, dual control for double bed, or two heavyweight wool or wool blend blankets. One comforter comforter for winter, 
preferably eider down, one bedspread. Is this eider down? <clears throat> oh, okay. I thought you loved me. <laughs> <laughs> bath linens. Quantities are for each bathroom. Six large towels, six small, six washcloths to match. These are all the match. Six guest towels, one shower curtain, two bath mats, kitchen, eight sturdy dish towels. I prefer prefer terry cloth to linen. Six dish cloths or two sponges, four pot holders, small bath towels and washcloths are needed for a maid who comes in by the day. Remember that terry cloth towels are very practical because they show only soil. Huck towels rumple the moment they are used. All of this plus table linen. One damask tablecloth, white or pastel color, three and a half yards long. If you ever plan to give a dinner for as many as 12 seated at one table, or two and a half to three yards long to fit a smaller table, 12 napkins to match, two or three yard and a half square linen tablecloths for bridge tables, matching nap- napkins are optional, one or two sets of linen placemats with matching napkins, 12 linen or cotton napkins in a neutral color, one set four to six plastic mats with smooth hard surface or treated paper mats for everyday use. One set six or eight plastic straw or any attractive mats of a more elaborate design for use at informal parties. Optional but very useful. Large monogrammed paper napkins. Cocktail, very useful. <laughs> cocktail napkins, paper, or cloth. These are offensive numbers. Oh. Especially considering that, like, these are your starter numbers, and you'll wish to expand on them. There is... You just turned a page over? <laughs> there are two pages, front and back. So, four pages of dishes that you should just have that shouldn't be included in the trousseau. But I, I am just stressed out. Looking at this, I mean, it's silver, it's china, it's things like sugar tongs, butter server, cake knife, pie server, monogram the silver. I mean, can we have monogram silverware someday? Yeah, as long as it's heavy. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm really judgmental on silverware. Don't you ever eat somewhere and it's like, oh my god, a little too light, and you're like, what is Yeah. (laughs) I guess I should have realized this earlier, but I I think Emily Post writes for a specific uh, class of wealth. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. I guess etiquette for the working class, Emily Post, would be like, you know, just (laughs) dig your shit out of the ground. (laughs) Just be happy if you get a fire going. Well, yeah, but, you know. When this was written, it was a different time wage-wise, right? I mean, I don't know. Wealth and not wealth. Yes, but she was wistfully looking back on the days of old trousseaus where it would fill an enormous mansion. Like, linens that would last the rest of your life. Are no longer a thing. Like, so this is what you have at, now, at a minimum. a modern woman <laughs> with, her, with her eight sheets. Yeah, it's just... Anyway, we are cool and unusual punishment. We are a weekly therapy session uh, and marriage counseling uh, etiquette podcast. (laughs) My name is Tyler, and I'm joined by my fiancé and my my trousseau bearer. Jody, how are you? I'm doing all right. The holidays are done. It's 2020. (sighs) Yeah, I didn't really think about that, like, that it wasn't just a new year, it was like a new decade, and I don't know, why don't we talk about that a second, because I had a couple of friends who just kind of had to log off of Facebook for a while, because they just got overwhelmed by people making all of these, you know, now it's like, the gen- there's a gen- generalization People are beyond saying, I'm going to lose 10 pounds or whatever. It's always like, oh, I want to be more mindful or more healthy. But it's it's not so much like that thing from the 90s or whatever. I'm going to get a gym membership. Yeah. like Now it's now it's like huge uh, arcing, like philosophical. like Yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be off of my phone more and I'm going to spend more time with my family. And like, I don't know why... 
you have to say any of that stuff. I sometimes wonder that, like why so many people need to say that stuff out loud. But then like also these decade reviews of like, you know, what's been happening over the past 10 years. And, you know, I guess if you're at a certain age and you're not with somebody and then you've got all these friends that are doing these decade reviews of, of their life and it's, you know, marriage and children and trips and all that kind of stuff that probably gets a little bit heavy. Yeah. You know, and like, I I don't, I could see if I hadn't met you, I could see sitting down to be like, like a decade in review and getting a few minutes and being like, "Mm, like, I don't want to think about this anymore. Yeah. (laughs) What was my favorite song of the last decade? (laughs) Things have really changed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, before we get into our stories, maybe we should mention what we're drinking. Because we have taken a <gasps> radical left turn. Yeah, should I take? I'll take a photo of it. Uh, we you entered. It's. I'll let you look at the. We had gone to the liquor store to get our uh, our weekly whiskey. We passed by a guy giving samples of flavored vodka, and uh, you called me over. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah. He, um, to put it into um context you were buying whiskey and some wine as a gift and i was going to go and buy some buns <laughs> and so i exited the liquor department to go and and do that and as i went by he stops me and asks me if i want to try this flavored vodka and i was like we were on our way to a uh family holiday type thing. So I was like, well, I'd definitely like to have a little vodka before I do that. And so he lets me pick out one and there's like a lime one and a prickly pear or whatever. And it's this brand Western Sun. And I believe he's from Minnesota, but this is a Texas product. And they were, he was explaining to me, this is the blueberry flavored piney woods, blueberry and he was explaining to me how why it was better because of course everybody has something that's better but their thing their their deal is that it's all natural flavors so like stoli for example has a lot of flavored vodkas but they're all artificially flavored so like these they use real fruits and stuff like that for it yeah if i if you ask me about flavored vodka I, the only thing i'd ever think of is uv yeah and i first of all i would not be like i would I, I would not consider the possibility that there are natural flavors in UV vodkas. Also, like, the idea of, like, UV vodka is, like, bad. In a, it's like, oh, it tastes like vodka, and there's another unpleasant taste in here, too. <laughs> like, they're not. But uh, anyway, the point is, this vodka is really, really tasty. It is. Uh, so, we, so we're drinking blueberry vodka tonight. Yeah. And um, I know that clear vodkas are supposed to be better for you, calorically speaking, so anyway, I would, this was at the, um, family fair, which used to be the Gordy's on the lake. Mm-hmm. Also, um, I would invite anybody else to go to the family fair on the lake, uh, if you're in the Chippewa area and go to the little cafe corner they seem to have carved out in the, oh. in the, right, right outside the liquor store. There's a, the, the liquor section, there's a corner that just has like six tables and a microwave. And a big sign that says, like, the cafe, it's where locals hang out. And it's real fucking weird. And, <laughs> and it's, I, like, old – yeah, it's weird that it's, like, um, old ice cream shop tables and chairs. <laughs> so there's old ice cream shop tables and chairs. But then there was, like, something from the grocery store shoved in there that had a bunch of excess product on it. Yeah, I'm guessing it doesn't see a lot of foot traffic. <laughs> so this – we're going to go there – um, on Saturday, after we do some prep stuff for a party we're hosting on Sunday, and we're going to go have dinner there. <laughs> yeah. Can you bring outside stuff? We should go to the subway. That is the thing. That's my question is that, like, it's the tables and a microwave. And it's not, like, near the deli, which would be my guess if you're, if you're expecting people to eat food there, that they would have, like, one of the, like, a deli meal. And it's not like close to the deli, so I don't know. 
there's a microwave there, so I guess they'll like bring something. I don't know what you're supposed to eat there. I don't know either. So we could, yeah, we could get uh, a deli meal and like two forties from the liquor store. And yeah, can you drink in there? I mean, I bet, I bet the managers don't have the answer to that question either, because nobody's ever asked what what can be done in that corner. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. If we get kicked out, that'd be a great story. I'm a local. I'm a local. <laughs> you tell me I can drink a hurricane to, in here. We're going to go to Dick Chalet first, and then we'll be really argumentative about it. Do you want me to tell you a story? Yeah. Let's okay. hear a story. So I had something else I'll picked out. Mm-hmm. And I won't tell you anything about that, except for that I'll say it's... Um, a case of a, uh, a John Doe type about how cases where somebody can be found dead and literally nobody, there's not one person watching the news or back in, you know, reading the paper or whatever. And they'll have like very distinctive tattoos or articles of clothing or something. And how can you not have, I think it's scary to think how easy it could be if you were, disconnected from your family uh if you didn't have a lot of friends and then your say your parents died like how quickly you can become a person that nobody would know you yeah yes okay that's and it's also weird. horrifying it's a weird coincidence that they are they all have the same name <laughs> <laughs> oh my all right we're we're gonna talk about diane Louise, and I am going to just go with Augat, A-U-G-A-T, if you want to look this Diane case up. Louise Augat. Yeah. So, this is a weird one. And it's not a Wisconsin case. Um, it's a Florida case. But it was so uh, compelling to me that I had to to share it. All right, she... Diane... Diane Louise Augat had already had a rather tough life um, before the strange and macabre events that were looming on the horizon occurred. In the 1980s, the then 30-year-old stay-at-home mom was diagnosed with severe bipolar disorder, and they give a description of what that is, but I think most of us are familiar. By all accounts, she was quite the wreck during during these years, which led to her being arrested numerous times, like 32 times. Nice. I mean, (laughs) there was another article that said 32, and I was like, oh, okay. Her marriage disintegrating, losing custody of her three children, and her spiral into drug and alcohol abuse. She would be institutionalized dozens of times over the years, and she finally found some semblance of peace when she moved in with her sister, whose name was Deborah, um, in this town of Hudson, Florida which is like 20 miles away from where Diane originally was from in a uh, place called Odessa. All right. So things were like, as far as Diane's world was concerned, you know, she was maybe making a turn for the better. Right. So on April 10th, 1998, she leaves the house at approximately 11 AM to go on some errand she was in good spirits in the previous days. There was nothing to indicate that anything was wrong, but by that evening, she didn't come back. And nobody had no clue where she had gone. Her sister is, like, mildly concerned, but mostly but just... also, like, <clears throat> is this going to be number 33? Like, yeah. you know, Diane. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So, she's mostly just curious at this point, because when you have a history like this, you know, this isn't the most sho- shocking of things. But then there's a bunch of witnesses who claim to have seen Diane doing various things throughout town. There was a bartender at the Hayloft Tavern at Little Road and State Road 52. He says that she had come in for a few drinks that day. He stopped serving her after she began acting drunk and walking in circles There was a report of a motorist who saw her walking north on U.S. Route 19 later that same day, um, all by herself. And on April 14th, remember this was August or April 10th, 
a waitress said she had seen the woman eating lunch at the inn on the Gulf Hotel, and as far as anyone knows, this would be the last time anyone would have seen her alive, with her seeming to have just stepped off the face of the earth. So those kinds of cases, also like the Jane Doe things, things where people just completely vanish. It's like, what the fuck, you know? So anyway, this is not that part. Sorry, I'm kind of stuffed up as usual, because I probably think I'm allergic to the cat, maybe a little bit. I think I've told you that before, right? Yeah. And also, my mom once told me I was allergic to cigarette smoke. Mm, I know. How? Yeah, I think she just told me that so that I wouldn't smoke. Okay, that sounds like a lie, but what was she... Who's that? Like, did you walk in on her smoking a cigarette? She's like, get out, you're allergic. (laughs) No, it's when they found out when I was like... Sorry, I backed way off the camera or the the microphone when I was like 18 and started college. And the first time I ever smoked, okay, I like the new station came to the campus and we're just playing B roll for some story. (laughs) What? You're in the background. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So my mom calls me and she's like, I saw you on the news. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, there was a story on campus and you're in the background, like laying on the grass, smoking cigarettes with your friends. And she's like, you know, a doctor once said you're allergic to cigarette smoke. That is wild. <laughs> I also like that. You are, she just, I don't know what this B-roll looks like, but it just sounds like a portrait of, of a college girl, like just laying on the, laying on the campus quad, smoking yeah. cigarettes with your friends. Yeah, and like talking about changing the system. <laughs> you know that your doctor said you were allergic to class warfare. <laughs> anyway, so back to Diane. The last night that somebody claims to have seen her, you know, this woman at the inn or whatever, Diane's mom comes home because now, okay, it's four days. Where's Diane? And, but this was also the 90s. I don't know. I think we will discover there's not a a formal missing persons report done yet. Her mom gets this voicemail on her answer machine. Okay. The mom's name is Mildred Young. And she plays back this recording and she hears Diane's voice and a struggle of some sort. There's a struggle. And then Diane's voice comes out clearly and she's yelling, help help let me out which is answered by a gruff voice commanding hey give me that before the line goes dead (sighs) a look at the now this next part's also puzzling okay so there's caller id on the phone right and it comes across as being from a place called starlight so in odessa where diane's from originally the call, the number back, there's no one that picks up. Weirdly, when authorities investigated this lead, they would find no business called Starlight in Odessa, although there were six establishments with that name within a 45-mile radius. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. However, detectives working the case were never able to trace exactly where the call had come from. Do you think that's a sign of the times? Doesn't that feel like... Huh? I mean, I guess. I don't know what they would do today if, you know, you you call the number back that the caller ID brought up. If it's not that, then I don't know. Just go go to other Starlights. Starlight Diner. Starlight Restaurant. I mean. Starlight Movie Theater, of course. Yeah. Uh, Starlight Auto Repair. Starlight VHS Rental. 1998. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on now. VHS rental, maybe like 1988. If my parents bought me a laptop to go to college with, there definitely were DVD players. But you know, okay. I see where you're going with it. I'm trying to think if we had the Matrix on VHS. Well, your family had a very interesting collection of VHS videos. Yeah. Oh, like you just seem to remember your face looks confused. You seem to just have like a lot of like the seconds of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
don't know. I mean, my mom was kind of like that too, but she would just buy stuff at garage sales and they're still all down in the basement as far as I know. Yeah. Did you know there was a Back to the Future before Back to the Future 2? I didn't find that out for 15 years. <laughs> like to have seen Back to the Future 2 first is yeah, really there's bizarre. There's a whole section that directly references the first movie that <laughs> right over my head. <laughs> oh my God. So that okay. call is the last lead, which is really a weird. Yeah. It's pretty scary. So then there's another lead on the 15th, all right, of April. When a woman walking along that US-19, remember, there had been a report on the day Diane went missing. One of them said they had seen her walking by herself on this highway. Mm -hmm. She discovers a severed finger just lying there in the dust and dirt by the side of the road. And listen to this. At the time, the woman just let it lie. But the next day, her boyfriend went back to retrieve it about after hearing about it from his girlfriend and he thought it might be important. That's that's a total like boyfriend thing. Like they're just laying in bed, just like Baby, but what about Who do you think the finger belongs to? Baby, just go to sleep. I just you know, someone's out there with four fingers and it's like we're doing nothing. <laughs> Who would just be like, you know, I was walking <laughs> and I saw a finger. <laughs> well, well did you grab it? No, I just let it lie. <laughs> like, who would just not? What are you, honey? It's three in the morning. What are you putting your pants on for? I gotta get that finger. <laughs> well, look, look, if you're not gonna get the finger, I'm gonna get the finger. He called the cops to get the finger. Mm. You know, smart guy. And I mean, the fact that listen, uh, there's something you need to know on Highway Twenty, on Highway Nineteen. There's a finger that's been let lie. <laughs> <laughs> they get the finger. Mm -hmm. They do. A, it's the right middle finger of a woman. Um, they do analysis. They discover it's Diane's finger. Okay. So immediately there's a search in this area for other body parts because they're like, what the fuck? Right. And, but they only found that finger left there for reasons nobody knows. Then there's a discovery two weeks later when there is a plastic bag filled with neatly folded clothing belonging to Diane. Diane found stashed in the outdoor freezer of a convenience store in Odessa, just a mile from her home when she lived in Odessa. All right. There's something really, <clears throat> I mean, assuming, and I, I don't know, maybe we'll find out in this story that, like, assuming she didn't put her own clothes in a bag in a freezer next to her house, there's something very troubling about the behavior of uh, people who kill, murder and mutilate where, where it's either like, um, like a, a, a psychosis or even if it's like panic. And, and like, well, we have to do something like stash it in a freezer, but then somebody like folded them first. Like, like it really kind of like gets under your skin. The thought of like somebody think like having to handle some crisis and they're like, fold them up, fold them up, put them in the bag. And then we'll put them in a random outside freezer at a, outside of a convenience store. <clears throat> so this case that happens and there's just a dead end for two years. They can't figure anything out. There must not have been any fingerprints on the clothing or the bag or the handle of the door, I guess. I'm desperately hoping that, right. you know, yeah. that these things were checked out. I don't know anything about Odessa, Florida, except for I'd never heard of it before the story. Um, so here's what I'm going to tell you next is even more strange, I think, than this one. All right, so we hit the year 2000. In the year 2000. So Diane's got a brother <laughs> who's got a girlfriend. All right. This girlfriend of Diane's brother goes to a convenience store in Pasco, Florida. And she finds 
within a freezer a Ziploc bag with the word Diane scrawled upon it. And it contains pink lipstick, eyeliner, a container of generic toothpaste, and a bottle of perfume. So in this story, it said that these items, they couldn't say for sure that they were hers. But in another story, I saw that the mom had said that the generic toothpaste was definitely the toothpaste that Diane had taken home with her from the asylum or wherever she sure. had. That's not but appropriate. Re- regardless you know. of if they were hers or not, whoever prepared the bag l- labeled them like. <sighs> yeah, right. So, and then I'm wondering, did they do DNA tests on this stuff? Like, uh, do you know, was this just not a high priority thing because this woman had a bad history? So then it was sort of like, well, she's kind of crazy and whatever. So, you know, she could have been stashing her lipstick all over town. So, okay. There's this question then. Why were these items dumped in a freezer? Why hadn't they been found for two years? It does seem pretty strange that this discovery was made right after there had been an article in the St. Petersburg Times that talked about the case. And it seems an even more incredible coincidence that Diane's brother's girlfriend would be the one to find it. But they were never pursued as persons of interest. So, all right, so that happens. That's weird. And we can't linger on it too long. But... Something doesn't add up there, correct? A bag with her personal effects and her name on top. Not even found in- by the brother's girlfriend in like a convenience store freezer. Freezer in a different town. Two years later. So, not long after this, another what witness comes forward with a belated report that says that Diane was at the Coral Sands Motel on US-19 and Maryland Avenue on the day the mom had gotten the sinister voicemail and authorities jumped on this. It was found that the owner of the motel, a Gary Robert Evers, had been accused of killing someone after an argument, and he became the only suspect then or since in the vanishing of Diane. Yet there's never been any evidence to link him to it at all. He has never been charged with anything. And there has been no other clues, leads, or anything else. And the case has gone completely cold since that. So so that that was... And I don't know... Wait, what links this motel owner to the story? After, like, the year 2000, that article came out, there was the weird things found. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes forward and they're like, Oh, I remember seeing that lady on... The day that the first freezer... Oh, no, on the day that the mom got the voicemail. Right. And they said she was at the Coral Sands Motel. I see. And that was on US-19, which is where the finger was found. Okay. And this owner was accused of killing somebody else? (laughs) Yeah. Over an argument. But they weren't ever able to really connect him to this case at all. So it was kind of like... Okay, well, I guess this is something, and they really followed it. So there's this thing. She had just been discharged from psychiatric care two weeks before the vanishing. She didn't take her meds on the day of going missing. She was known to have not taken her meds when with her when she left home on that morning. So she might have had some sort of mental break. Um. However, how does that fit in with the severed finger, the clothes, other personal belongings? Why would those be placed there? Surely they were intentionally placed, but by who and why? There's this other idea that she was kidnapped. She was notorious for being very trusting with men she didn't know. But even if that were the case, why would they taunt the family like that? What was with that phone call and the finger on the road, the things in the freezer? Where was Starlight? Was she killed, kidnapped, or did she just run off to fade away? No one really knows, and the clues and pieces of the puzzle have never really added up. So. Jesus. 
It's a lot of yeah. big substantial clues to, f- for a case that just went cold. Yeah. So there's my case. I there's something when I read it, I was like, this is so on oddly unsettling to me that I had to bump it because I just sometimes you read cases and they can be missing persons cases, but there's so many things that makes me think like there should be an, a way to figure this out. You have a phone number. Yeah, it seems like you have a lot of evidence. That, a bunch of things that should have DNA and, on them. And like around the year 2000. <laughs> like it's not. It's not like the 80s where like right. know, DNA testing. We're all kind of fucking around. Like like they should have. Yeah, it was more or less just saving things for a time when you were hopeful. Yeah, but like the OJ case had happened. You know, I mean. Well, the glove didn't fit. <laughs> Glove doesn't fit. You got to acquit. I I would like. Is there? Uh, I know there's been TV shows made about it and probably documentaries. I would like to go back and experience the trial. I know. Um. Oh, the, well, you the, have the to guy, watch the John the Travolta in the boat, one in, in the boathouse or whatever in the the guest house, like that. Cato Kalen. Cato Kalen, like apparently just a nice guy who like got wrapped up in this. Like, I know there are like elements to that whole case that are very fascinating. But I only understand it through pop culture and the jokes about O.J. Oh, Simpson. you so have like, to watch that documentary with John Travolta. It's really good. Yeah, I bet it is. Yep. <clears throat> I'm going to do the O.J. Simpson case next week <laughs> for for fellow millennials who didn't get to experience it. Oh, my it. God. Uh, <clears throat> okay. I have a story for you. It's about a man named Richard Parker. And to start, I want to tell you about... Um, Something known as the custom of the sea. It is a euphemism that describes... uh, Can I... Before we go into that. Richard Parker. You might... uh, Life of Pi. That's correct. I... uh, That is kind of tangentially related, and I will tell you why. The custom of the sea is uh, sort of parallel to, you know... Naval maritime law, official law. The custom of the sea is a sort of what happens off the book. It's a euphemism that describes um certain things that sailors understand specifically about sexy time. Specifically, it describes <sighs> um cannibalism among shipwrecked survivors where uh, you draw straws to determine uh, who will be eaten. Um, also, it describes the. Person- it doesn't go by like who's the most ill. Uh, I mean, gross. Well, Maybe you don't want to eat a sickie. That will come up. But but assuming uh, a group of survivors, all things being equal, you draw straws. The second shortest straw is the person who will be the butcher. Um, and it is the uh, a way to equalize everything and make everything fair, the needs of the many, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is actually uh, a philosophy that goes back quite a long time. In ancient Rome, cannibalism and murder were actually permitted under instances instances of necessity. Uh, the actual maxim in Roman law was, quote, that from necessity springs privileges upon privilege uh, pro- upon private rights. Uh, These are a bunch so, of libertarians. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> so I want to tell you about Richard Parker, and the story starts in 1883. A wealthy lawyer from Australia, his name is Je- John Henry Wants. Uh, he wants. To buy a yacht, as all rich men do. It's a tale that goes back <laughs> centuries. Uh-huh. He wants a big old boat because he's very rich. So he travels to England, and he's in the market for a yacht. And he finds one. It's a 16-year-old yacht. Uh, it's a 52-foot inshore cruiser named the uh, Minionette. 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 So he buys it. But uh, he's not he's not actually a, a sailor himself. Oh, we got a visual. He's not actually a sailor himself. So what he does is while he's in England, he hires a captain 
and he pays him the equivalent of $30,000 in today's U.S. dollars um, with the instructions to have the ship repaired and to hire a crew and to sail it back to Australia for him. Oh, they, that happens these days. People go out and get cars for dealerships and drive them back. So on May 19th of 1884, the Mininette set sail from England to Sydney with a crew of four people. The captain, Tom Dudley, uh, Edwin Stevens, Edmund Brooks, and a 17-year-old cabin boy. By the oh. name of Richard Parker. He's uh, uh, an inexperienced sailor, but he's looking to get his foot in the door. He's trying to become... Uh, a cabin man. A cabin... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know that he had, uh, didn't all that was coming, right? No, I didn't. God, I love you. <clears throat> so they set sail. May 19th of 1884. For the first month, everything's going pretty well. Um, but then... Uh, about a month later, uh, July 5th, they are sailing around the uh, Cape of Good Hope, which is uh, the southern tip of Africa. They run into some stormy weather. Is that anywhere near the Panama Canal? It's it's on the same planet. Um, this storm was not particularly noteworthy. Noteworthy. Uh, any any seasoned captain and a on a decent ship would be able to handle it. Um, but this ship was not particularly, uh, sturdy, well repaired. It wasn't very sturdy. Uh, I mean, (laughs) um, in fact, it was a, uh, in, when I describe it as an inland yacht, that means it's not actually made for long voyages. Oh dear. Um, what happens is that holes start developing in the hull and, uh, it starts to uh, sink. It starts to take on water. So the captain quickly orders the 13-foot lifeboat to be lowered. Um, and in their scramble, this four men, these four men are going for the lifeboat. They don't, uh, they don't really have time to take inventory and, and plan ahead. <coughs> but they get onto the lifeboat, and the mini net sinks in only five minutes. And these four men are in the lifeboat. and they With sca- a tiger. <laughs> no tiger. Uh, they escape with their lives. And what they... <laughs> They, they get away. The mini-net sinks. And that first night, uh, they, they don't really get a chance to get their bearings because the first night they're actually fighting off sharks uh, with their oars that are attacking the boat. But they survive that. And the sun comes up. And so they take stock of their supplies. They have managed to bring along some navigational equi- equipment, two tins of turnips, and no fresh water. <laughs> So this is what a depressing bunch of stuff to find. The uh, navigational stuff is great, minus the fact you're never going to live to probably use it. Uh, and I do have a picture of the lifeboat. So, oh my god, they ration the food, uh, the turnips, the turnips. Dudley uh, keeps the first tin of turnips until July seventh. That's two days uh, after the ship goes down, uh, when its five pieces were shared among the men to last for two days. Uh, Around July 9th, Brooks spots a turtle, which Stevens drags on board. The crew were resolutely avoiding drinking seawater, of course. They were sailors. They know not to. Um, And though they devoured the turtle, uh, they even went as far as they they split up the meat and they even ate the bones. Uh, But they did not drink its blood because it became contaminated with seawater. The turtle yielded about three pounds of meat each. Um, So with the turtle and the second tin of turnips, uh, the food lasted until July 15th. That's 10 days after the ship's gone down. Uh, the crew consistently con- failed to catch any rainwater. But by July 13th, with no other source of fluid, they began to drink, th- drink their own urine. Um, it was reported that it was probably around July 20th that Richard Parker, the cabin boy, uh, became ill, probably through drink- drinking seawater at night while everyone slept. Oh, Richard. How old was he, though? 17. He was just, he was just a little cabin boy. He's a small He's boy. He's a small cabin boy. <laughs> um, so, at this point, around the 20th, this is 15 days, two weeks after, two weeks in the lifeboat. They're out of food. They have no water. The time has come to discuss 
the custom of the sea. Oh, no. The captain, Tom Dudley, is the first one to suggest it. While the others were reluctant, they debated it as an option. Uh, Parker, of course, was likely too sick to say much. But the first mate, Edwin Stevens, seemed to agree with the captain. And uh, Edwin Brooks, the third guy, uh, seemed to resist the idea. But on their 19th day adrift, and for a week since their last bite of food, Captain Dudley told the others that if they saw no vessel in the next 24 hours, they should kill Parker, who was already nearly dead. There would be no drawing straws for them this time. Parker wasn't going to survive, but everyone else could be preserved if they did the difficult thing. And they would just eat him raw. Yes. The following day arrived. There was no sign of rescue. Uh, Dudley and Stevens were in agreement about what needed to be done, but Brooks refused to participate. After a short prayer, Dudley used his penknife on Parker's throat while Stevens held his legs down. Um, oh, my God. In some varying and confused uh, later accounts of the killing, Parker is said to have murmured, quote, What? Me? <laughs> As he was slain, he was apparently, like, basically in a coma. He was unconscious. He was kind of drifting in and out. So it, it's kind of questionable whether he woke up long enough to say, what, me? <laughs> uh, but the three, uh, they fed on his body. They, they ate his organs. They drank his blood. Um, eventually, they came around to having to eat his flesh as well. Um, and soon after this, a few days after, they also managed to catch some rainwater. Um Dudley would later describe the scene, quote, I can assure you I shall never forget the sight of my two unfortunate companions over that ghastly meal. We all was like mad wolves who should get the most. And for men, fathers of children, to commit such a deed, we could not have a right reason. I think I, I remember this. So four days later. I remember what happens when they come back. Four days later on July 29th, the crew spots a sail on the horizon. It's the German ship Montezuma. Uh, they get picked up. Six weeks later, they are dropped off at the port of Falmouth in Cornwall, England. And they they go through customs. They enter statements at the uh, to the officials at the customs house regarding what happened. Um, all three of them were as candid as they could be because they are experienced sailors and they and they all. Uh, understand that they are protected by an understanding of the custom of the sea. So they give their depositions and they make preparations to return home to their families. But soon after that, they're arrested instead. Yes. And they are in prison uh, because what they didn't realize was that in the years before uh, leading up to this and in the time since they had left, England uh, English law has begun to consolidate from sort of regional judges making um, choices yeah, as they see fit. And, and, and they're trying to consolidate law into an actual written objective English law that we can all reference. Uh, and one of these debated laws that they're, they're fighting over is the idea of cannibalism at sea. And now these three guys have just uh, come ashore with a story talking about eating a guy. And so – now this opportunity has arisen for this case to be made formal law, and uh, Brooks, who uh, had refused to take part in the actual murder, and but all, did all eat three the attested guy. to that. He did eat him, but uh, everyone uh, attested the fact that he didn't want to take part in the murder. He was released, but Dudley and Stevens went to trial uh, under a judge named Baron Huddleston. Which is the most 19th century British name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> uh, Baron Huddleston is eager to have his name on the first official uh, court decision regarding cannibalism at sea. This is going to be like he's going to etch his name into history with this with this court case. And so he he's a little biased in this case. Um, despite the fact that the entire town, it's a port town, so like everybody has sailors in the family. Everybody understands what these guys did. The whole town is behind these men, um, including Richard Parker's own brother, a former sailor who shows up and is photographed like shaking hands with the men in his uniform to show support. Um, but the judge knows what he wants and he runs a very biased trial 
um, to the point where when after the trial, when the jury is, is the day when they come in to deliver the verdict, Huddleston arrives with a pre-written verdict and he tells the jury, look, it'll be a lot simpler if you just agree with the judge. And they're like, okay. So, oh, no. So the judge sentences them both to death. <gasps> oh, my God. I don't remember that. Um, and oh. this verdict is pretty... Uh, that is it's, brutal. It's not taken well, even by like legal scholars. Everyone's kind of like, this doesn't make I'll any sense. They should get three months at most. Uh, but Hulston's like, he's sticking to his verdict. And it's creating such an uproar that eventually the news reaches Queen Victoria. And so Queen Victoria steps in and she pardons them. She says they need uh, six months in prison and after that they should be released. Uh, which is what happens. The two men escape with their lives uh, a second time. <clears throat> so these events, these 1884 events of the Minionette and the four men on the lifeboat, um, they left a pretty big footprint on, on English law and about the understanding of the custom of the sea and uh, also a pretty big footprint on pop culture. As you mentioned in the book and the film Life of Pi, where a boy is on a lifeboat with a tiger, uh, the tiger's name is Richard Parker. That is a homage to I did not know seventeen-year-old cabin boy. Seventeen-year-old. Um, is that what I said? Oh, I thought you said ten. A ten-year-old cabin boy. <laughs> <laughs> boy. Um, there's one other um, uh, pop culture reference to Richard Parker, and it's in. A punk song. It's in Edgar Allen's one novel that he wrote, one full novel. Um, it was called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Uh, the book's main story revolves around a young man named Arthur Gordon Pym, who stowed away on the whaling ship owned by his friend's father. The ship's crew mutinies, and the captain is set adrift in a lifeboat, along with a few others. But Pym, along with his friend... Augustus and another sailor, Dirk, they retake the ship from the mutineers and they kill all the mutineers except for one, a sailor named Richard. Uh, shortly after that, a storm rolls in, it capsizes the vessel, and the four of them are left clinging to the wreckage. It eventually becomes clear that they will starve unless one of them is sacrificed, and after drawing straws, it is decided that Richard Parker is the one to be killed and eaten. Oh, uh, his last name is Parker in that? Richard Parker is the name of the sailor they they they, they kill and eat in this story. Uh, what's strange about the story, though, is that it, it wasn't actually inspired by the events of the Minionette. Uh, it was written in 1838, 46 years before the real Richard Parker would meet the same fate. Oh, my. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Yeah. What? Is that a good book? Never read it. It apparently uh it sold well. His fans liked it. Uh critics kinda lambasted it for being too grisly and too violent. Uh probably on account of the cannibalism. Wow. Apparently, what are the chances? I don't know. It's fucking wild. And then almost 50 years later, uh, it happens for real. <laughs> and becomes an enormous, like, uh, a staple of, like, English law. And it's Richard Parker. Yeah. And then he becomes a tiger in a movie. Okay. Well, sometimes we were going to talk about a bar we visited. I think I'm going to just briefly... We're, we're close enough to the outro that I could... I have to pee so bad. Oh. Okay. I'm going to talk about a bar that I'm taking Tyler to. Sometimes we're when wanting to um, end the show with a bar that we've been to, but in this case, I'm going to do the opposite. This is a bar I've been to and Tyler's not been to. It's called Dick Chalet here in Chippewa Falls. And my fond memory of that place, uh, my dad and I, in better times, uh, used to go there every once in a while and... Uh, there was a year when my mom was working um, before she retired, she was a nurse. And so 
as some of you are familiar with, if you're a nurse, you kind of do an every other holiday type thing. So there was a year probably, God, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that, where my mom was working on Christmas Eve and my dad and I, uh, being alone on Christmas Eve, were like, hey, uh, we should go to a bar. And my dad's like, let's go to Dick Chalet. So we go to Dick Chalet and they're having some sort of customer appreciation night. And there's like a tub of Dean's French onion dip out with chips and free beer, just free beer and all these snacks. And there was like nobody in there at the time. And there was like an old movie playing and Dick who was going blind and in very bad health, who would just wander off and leave the cash register open and nobody ever did anything. My dad's like, Dick, what are your plans for the holidays? And Dick's like, don't buy, don't get, don't give. And (laughs) like just this really sour (laughs) opinion on, on stuff. So anyway, uh, there was a time I don't know, three years ago, I don't even remember truly who I was with or why I was back in that bar, but it was discovered that Dick had passed away and it seems as though the bar is doing better than it was when he was alive. So when we go and eat our dinner at the family fair, odd locals only corner, locals only corner, we're going to first go to Dick Chalet and, um, and you'll get to experience, you know, uh, there's some cool old uh, beer memorabilia in there. I seem to remember some, there was some really cool Budweiser stuff in there and, and also a kind of questionable blackface, one of those, you know what I'm talking about? The, the boy things with the light, they're like holding something in their hands do you know? I don't know specifically what you're talking about. But it was like a weird statue. There's, there's a lot of like blackface art stuff that that sits right in this time period where like uh, the people who own it are like, no, this was just like they don't. They're yeah. not. They're, they don't keep it because they like would consider themselves racist. They just think like, no, this is an art piece I've owned for many years. And yeah. Like, it's, and it's, it gets very awkward when you try to... I know. I've been to antique shops where there's yes. of, of Yeah, weird. we've seen... I forget where we were at, but... Um, <laughs> anyway, I think that's still there because it was Dick's and... Uh, I don't know. Dick I, was blind, so he didn't see color. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, what do you think the chances are that we can get somebody who's doing grocery shopping in family fair to take our picture in the locals only corner? Like we're <laughs> like we're at an amusement park. Pretty good. Maybe you could pretend to propose to me again in there. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. It's going to be a lot of people. It, well, not a lot of people. Whoever's shopping, like there's going to be some scattered applause because – People are there and they feel like they have to, but it's going to be kind of like a sad applause where they're going to be whispering to each other like, oh, no. That news could get to the other family fair, though. It would be funny if we ended up getting like a news story about us. Well, slow slow down. (laughs) In their favorite grocery store. It's my favorite grocery store. I was just in here last week and wandered around for 10 minutes looking for bread. Because I'm in here so often. I We always come here to get our potato wedges. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's sign off. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode 11 of Cool and Unusual Punishment, but episode one of the new decade. Uh, you can find us at coolandunusualpunishment.site. I've been cultivating <laughs> top-level domains. Oh, God, that's another one, huh? Yeah. Um, you can email us at mail at coolandunusualpunishment.com with your stories of cannibalism. You can rate and review us on your podcast app. You can say, hey, these guys are doing their best. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Is that it? Stay cool. You know, don't be unusual. Turn over a new leaf in this new decade and find yourself and find balance and cut out the toxic people in your life. Bye. She's already walking away. Bye.